You might call Tammy Simon a spiritual entrepreneur. As a college dropout and a seeker in her early 20s, she started a company called Sounds True. Sounds True is now a $12 million multimedia publisher with a mission to disseminate spiritual wisdom. It publishes audio courses, books, music, and instructional DVDs by diverse teachers and thinkers like Pema Chodron and Eckhart Tolle, Daniel Goleman, and Brene Brown. From this vantage point, Tammy Simon has been following the evolution of spiritual curiosity and practice for three decades. She has fascinating advice on treating technology as a personal investigation tool, an aid to spiritual practice. And she is compelling on the hard but gratifying work of joining inner life with life in a workplace. We took it on as an experiment. And the experiment is there are all of these tremendous virtues, verities, that the world traditions point to that we can live in our individual lives. How do we live it collectively in our organizational lives? I'm Krista Tippett. This is On Being from APM American Public Media. Tammy Simon is founder and CEO of Sounds True, which is based in Boulder, Colorado. She's publisher of the company's extensive catalog. She also hosts a weekly podcast called Insights at the Edge. I wonder, uh, was there a spiritual background to your childhood or, or spiritual identity to your childhood? I would say mostly loneliness, which is not exactly a spiritual identity, but maybe a lack of connection. Hmm. And even though I was very well loved by my family and had a very good education and maybe from the outside looked like a fairly happy and well-adjusted person, on the inside, there was this huge sense of a crevasse between what I was really thinking about and caring about and being able to find people to talk to. And sometimes I think that Sounds True was a response, actually, mm. to the loneliness that I felt because I wanted to talk about really deep spiritual questions I had. So it wasn't that there were some great realizations as a young person, but it was more this aching sense of, what is going on here? <laughs> what is actually happening? And will anybody talk to me about that, about those big questions that I feel when I get into bed at night? Well, did you, um, you left college. Did you, had you discovered meditation? Or I mean, was there any meditation? Were, were there any of these traditions uh, in your life? Did you know about them bef before you went away? Yeah. Well, when I went to college, to Swarthmore College, I was lucky that in my sophomore year, I met someone who was there on a Fulbright scholarship, a professor named Gunapala Dharmasiri, and he was from Sri Lanka, huh. and he was teaching a course. He was just there for one year on existentialism and Buddhism. And so, of course, I signed up for that right away, and it was in that sophomore year in that course that he actually taught all of the students how to meditate. So that was my first introduction to meditation. Mm. And what happened to me in that sophomore year was that I started looking at everything else that was happening in academia through a lens of a critique of first-person experience, meditation experience, and uh, things started looking stranger and stranger, hence my exit. <laughs> 
from college and my travels in Sri Lanka, India, and Nepal, where I deeply became engaged in the practice of meditation. Hmm. There was something in me that had gotten lit on fire that I had to follow. And that took me away from academic study. And I ended up coming to Boulder, Colorado, because I wanted to look deeply at the question of uh, the psychology of meditation. And Mm. the place that I could study that was at Naropa University. And so that's what brought me out to Colorado. And somewhere in, uh, I believe in this blog that you wrote for a few years, a a few years ago, you... um you talked about you were you know you were, you were working as a waitress you were you were doing some radio and you talked about you were also praying and that th- th- this became kind of this leap this leap for you and then kind of a life of leaping followed and your work is not strictly associated with buddhism but but personally associates you so much with uh, with that tradition in which prayer is not necessarily part of the core vocabulary well certainly in me prayer is a really, really essential way that I relate to the world. You could say, for me, it's a cry of Mm. the heart. And in a sense, even I think as that lonely child, I was praying then too. And in that sense, something was happening inside my heart that was a reaching out and a reaching up saying, uh, here's something inside that I can barely give words to, but it's a deep longing, and it's the most important thing to me, and I want to bring it forward and lay it down right at the, the altar, if you will, right at the ground. Here's what I need to lay down because it's what matters most to me. So I think this prayer in my heart and being willing to declare that, that's really been a a critical way that each unfolding in my life has progressed. And what you did with this is you started a business, you started a company. Um, And I think that might look like an untraditional response to the spiritual experience you just described. Well, I wasn't necessarily looking to start a company. My prayer was God, and the use of that word may also surprise you, but it's uh, a living word inside my heart. God, I'm willing to do your work. Please show me what it is. And the, the wording of that was quite careful. The willing word was the most important word because I didn't want whatever work that I did in the world to be willful. I didn't want it to be something I was pushing. At the same time, I didn't want to be willless. And, you know, it turned out to be a quote unquote business, but it actually took me quite, quite a while to even realize I was in business. Okay. In fact, after uh, starting Sounds True the local newspaper did a story on the company and they told me that it would be published. And I, when I went to look in the newspaper to see where the story was, I looked in the lively arts section <laughs> and it took me a while to see that it was actually on the front page of the business section. Oh, right. And I think that I wasn't particularly employable at the time. So the idea of working for myself seemed logical, but it wasn't, it really had nothing to do with being quote unquote in business. Mm. It's so interesting to think about how, this part of life in particular, I mean, so much has changed in these decades, but this part of life, this en- encounter with spirituality in this culture has evolved since that time. What were people looking for or reading? What were you, 
I mean, what were you meeting in yourself, but also in the culture that is different from now? You know, what do we need to recall about how we got here? Well, you know, 28 years ago, something like meditation was considered something that uh, Hare Krishnas or people in cults were yeah. engaged in. Mm-hmm. It was certainly not part of our uh, vocabulary, our mainstream vocabulary. The word mindfulness wasn't part of our vocabulary. Yoga was just kind of beginning. And it was before all of the yoga DVDs and the whole yoga movement exploded. And then after the explosion of people's interest in yoga, now we see this interest in meditation and and mindfulness and the introduction of the neuroscience to support these different spiritual practices. So that was all off the map. And instead it was, oh, people who are, are... uh, fresh back from India and are wearing weird robes and carrying beads are interested in this kind of thing. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, Tammy Simon. She founded and runs Sounds True, a multimedia company with the mission to disseminate spiritual wisdom. One um, impulse that I find running through the interviews you do is um, a fascination with, you know, how and why different people apprehend these kinds of teachings. I mean, it really follows on what you were just saying, and but not just in terms of the medium, but how we're you know we're able to integrate wisdom into our lives, or fail to integrate it, or or find it and then lose it, <laughs> and, 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 and driving at, you know, what happens when real transformation becomes possible? What does that mean, and, and what makes that possible? You know, one of the things that has been so interesting to me is I have the opportunity to witness spiritual teachers at their best when they're teaching, when they're open, when they're communicating what they care the most about, and in a sense, when they're in their biggest, most expanded selves. But then I also have the opportunity to work with those same teachers during a contract negotiation or during a uh, disappointment about a misprint on the back cover of a book Mm. or a missed publicity opportunity or all kinds of things that happen in the world of publishing. And one of the things that I've really taken a lot of curiosity about is how complicated human beings are in terms of this same person can deliver some of the most beautiful teachings in one way and really be uh, quite challenged in certain kinds of relationships, in certain kinds of communication dynamics and how to understand all of that and how we can all get more real about that and get behind the curtain, if you will. Mm. Because I think when we do that, we stop having this idealization about what the spiritual process of transformation is and about who spiritual teachers are. And when we drop some of that idealization, we can actually start embracing all of ourselves more. And it allows us to soften in the way that we look at ourselves. And it equalizes the fact 
and lets us see that we're all on a journey of evolution and development. I think for many people, um, I mean, the 80s was also the height, I believe, of, of New Age, I mean, as that phrase entered American culture. And I think that for many people, rightly or wrongly, it was associated with, uh, you know, there's this phrase I remember hearing a Christian theologian use once, which, which I, I resonate with, a, bit, a spiritual promiscuity, you know. I'll take a little bit of that, a little bit of this. Um, kind of dabbling in spirituality and dabbling in many traditions. And, I, you know, what's interesting about Sounds True and what you do is you have a great, obviously, great appreciation for great teachers of many traditions, but that at some point you also, as you've continued, it seems to me, to really push at what does transformation mean, and not just in an abstract sense, but in your own life, that there's also always been this um, move in you to dig deeper and deeper, and, and to, mm-hmm. the, to the point that you, have a, you now have a long-term teacher. Um, mm-hmm. And was that a turn for you at some point that was not there in you earlier on? Mm-hmm. Well, I think in my own path, I followed each step of the way and continue to follow where the goods are, to just put it in colloquial language, where the energy is, where the intensity is, where I think I can really learn and grow. And I met a teacher in the course of working at Sounds True who came in to record a series on Buddhist Tantra. And in the process of spending about two weeks in the studio together, I realized that he could help me with my meditation practice in a way that I really needed. I felt a little lost Hmm. at the time, and I felt that I hadn't been deepening in a way that I sensed was possible, and that I sensed through working closely with him and being trained that there would be something that could open up for me, and I wanted to do that. And this was Reggie Ray. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and this is Reggie Ray, who um, studied for many years with Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, a meditation teacher from Tibet and the founder of Naropa University. And yet I've continued to believe that there's no one recipe and no one path that is the quote-unquote way, God forbid, for everybody has to find what's true for them. Mm-hmm. And I think the key is that we have to be willing to tell ourselves the truth. We have to tell ourselves the truth when we know that we're a little lost and that we could go deeper, hmm. when we know we need some discipline in our lives, when we know that what we need perhaps isn't being offered by the tradition we've been practicing in, or when we have relationship challenges, and it seems like working with a therapist is really what's going to be required to get to the kind of material that seems to be keeping our hearts from fully expressing in the relationships we care the most about. And maybe it's not even being addressed in our spiritual practice and that we need something else. And I actually think people are so much more intelligent than uh, many spiritual traditions give, give credit to this individual knowing and that often right. that we give credit to ourselves right. even. To me, it's like we, we know what we want to eat. Do you know what I mean? It's that close to us, you know? And I think that when it comes to meaning and what we really need to feed our heart, we know that too.
You've talked about having an allergy to ideas that are detached from experience, or and and I, I've had this. I mean, I this is absolutely fundamental to my work too. The to see what happens to these insights when they are attached, when they when they are absolutely when they are intertwined with humanity and human experience. Um, could you give me an example of a person, a conversation, uh, a teaching that you've encountered lately, or that's on your mind that that just yeah. that illuminates that that dynamic? Well, here's one of the things that I think's interesting, which is sometimes when we're engaged in a in a conversation, we think the thing that we're going to learn the most from is what somebody says. So we're listening to their words and we can read a transcript of it. But um, recently I gave a a talk at a women's uh, event and afterwards somebody came up to me and they said, can I tell you what the most important part of your talk was? And I was like, yeah, sure, whatever, you know. (laughs) Yeah, okay. And uh, she said it was when you, you paused what was happening. And then I paused again and I tried to remember and uh, Reggie, the teacher that I work with, uh, one of the things that he said to me recently was how in any situation, you can always ask the question, where's the emptiness in this? Where's the emptiness in this? And in any moment or situation where we find this gap, where we find this sense of Everything's not just one long sentence that isn't even punctuated. And sometimes our days feel like that. Yeah. They just, you know, we wake up, we know we have so much to do, and then we go to sleep at night. Okay, well, and whatever gaps sentence. there are, we are filled. They're just filled for us. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And yet it's in those moments where actually there's a, a quietude. That's when new life and fresh ideas can come through us and into the situation. I think that's a lot actually where humor comes from too. Some of the the greatest yeah. humorists because how do they come up with this stuff on the spot? It's not the rehearsed comedic monologue. It's something, you know, uh, unusual that's happening in that moment because there's a Swiss cheese like quality, if yeah. you will, yeah. to the way that they are in the moment. There's this openness, these gaps, these holes. And I think that's actually a, a way that we can be in situations and then we become actually this uh, conduit for fresh ideas that are responsive, wholly responsive to the situation at hand. Another thing that sounds true is a vehicle for, I think, is taking you know, very ancient teachings and traditions in part out of very much out of the containers they've been in traditionally i mean I, when you when you interviewed reggie ray your your teacher um and and i and i kind of got the sense that uh you were circling around with him that it, it's not precisely that these things would have been secret before but 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 you are putting into technology teachings that have not been accessible in that way and and maybe also really crossing the boundary of things that were held close and held private and secret it's, it's interesting mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I think one of the questions, of course, we have to ask ourselves is why were certain teachings held secret or private? And was it for the benefit of the students or was it for the benefit of some other agenda of some kind? Uh, I also think we have to recognize that in the time that we're in, there is at least, it appears to me, a readiness in many people because of the amount of teachings that have been widely available and the acceleration that has happened in our own learning and development. And also, I would say, just to get a little woo-woo here, just a sense of uh, uh, overall accelerated growth and development that seems to be the case inside many, many people, that there's a readiness to hear certain ideas. And I also, and this is a really um, important idea, I think a lot of teachings are quote-unquote self-secret. So what I mean by that is Mm. even as I'm sitting here and I'm talking about emptiness and what does it mean, where's the emptiness in a situation, I'm sure there could be somebody listening who's like, what the heck is she talking about? I have absolutely (laughs) no idea. Like, what is this? I just don't get it. So it's not like there's any um, harm in offering in my view, teachings that people might not uh, understand because the vocabulary might not work because they just won't care, actually. (laughs) It won't be relevant to who they are. Listen again, download, and share this conversation with Tammy Simon through our website, onbeing.org. There you can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. We're on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter. Follow our show, at Being Tweets. I'm there, at Krista Tippett. Coming up, Tammy Simon on treating your mobile device as a spiritual tool and on humanizing our workplaces, for example, with pets people stop and say, oh my God, you know, they immediately move into this place of petting an animal and suddenly an adorable animal is the one that's interrupting this sense of, I have all these really important things to do and I don't have time for that. I'm Krista Tippett. This program comes to you from APM American Public Media. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with Tammy Simon. She's founder and CEO of Sounds True, a leading publisher of spoken word spiritual teachings in the U.S. Sounds True originally specialized in audio tapes, often of spiritual teachings. Now it's also a publisher with a wide range of subjects and authors, including works by the globally popular Eckhart Tolle and Fred Kaufman's emerging classic, Conscious Business. Tammy Simon has worked intentionally across the years to create a business culture that is effective while inviting employees to bring their whole selves to work. She does this by welcoming dogs at work, having a full kitchen for cooking meals, and taking a minute of silence before business meetings. Something else that I'd really like to get into with you is... um, translating this is one way i would i would describe um i think one of the passions that drives you and that is 
there in the most authentic and exciting spiritual energy of our time, which is this drive to link the inner and the outer. And how you make that link real also in a corporate culture. Because whether you, whether you meant to create a business or not, when you were in your early 20s, you have created a very successful business now. Yeah. Well, for me, uh, if the inner and the outer are not in an embrace, then I'm not sure how to live my life in a way that's meaningful and makes sense. So it's not like I can be a, a loving person on the meditation cushion and then walk into work and exploit my employees and make business deals that are unfair to other people. I mean, the idea that there could be a separation is actually um, just completely uh, unfathomable to me. It doesn't make doesn't make any sense. It doesn't, doesn't. But as you know, it happens. I mean, you know, I mean, it, it happens all the time. I mean, that link is not in one spiritual tradition or another. And I think in this culture, in fact, for a number of generations at least, we've kind of encouraged people to compartmentalize this part of their lives. Yeah, I guess what I'm saying is instead of saying, how do I make the link, I would ask a different question, which is, how do people separate these things? Right, right. How do they do that? Uh-huh. Because to me, it's not about taking two separate things and linking them together. It's about saying, I'm a human being who wants to give and live in integrity and have enough money to support my life and to live a sustainable and beautiful and abundant life. How do I, how, how do, I do all that? They were never separate mm-hmm. to begin with, mm-hmm. so I'm not linking them. I'm just wanting to live a good life and a life of service um, and a life of beauty. And so that to me is actually the starting point. And then when it comes to, well, how does that happen in a business? I think uh, it's having realistic goals for the business, uh, not taking investment money into the company that has a different agenda than what I just described, because then there would be a different set of drivers. You know, right now there's 85 employees at Sounds True. We've been in business for almost three decades. And we took it on as an experiment. And it's still an experiment. And the experiment is there are all of these tremendous virtues, verities, that the world traditions point to that we can live in our individual lives. How do we live it collectively in our organizational lives? How do we do that? How do we make sure that just really simple ideas of respect and honesty and uh, caring for each other, caring for our customers, how do we do that? That's our experiment. We want to do it because then the process of our work will be consonant coherent with the products of our work. So that's that's been our yeah. experiment. And so what are so what are some of the the practicalities of of that experiment? What you do? You know, um I I've learned a lot uh from the conscious capitalist movement and one of the ways that they've articulated something that we were naturally already doing at Sounds True that I quite like which is making sure that all of the stakeholders of the business are considered when you make decisions. 
in the running of the company. So that means that, yes, uh, the employees are important, but the customers and the vendors and even um, the earth seven generations beyond. And I would say in the business that we're in, uh, that even the ideas themselves, the integrity of the ideas, that mm. they're, the ideas get to be a stakeholder. Mm. They get to be respected so that they're not dumbed down or diluted or dissected in such a way that the, I, the, the teachings have become um, compromised in some way. Mm. So that's where you have something like, you know, a 33 CD set. Well, that's what it took in order to be able to communicate this quite sophisticated round of teachings. Okay, let's do it because the idea, this this teaching itself is a stakeholder in our, in our business in a sense. So looking at things from that perspective, a business makes different kinds of decisions. So that's a core idea, honoring mm-hmm. all of the stakeholders. You know, I also think just something that's hard for people in general, and it's been hard at Sounds True, is how do we learn to work with each other in a relationship where everybody is really being heard and where we're learning to collaborate, where we're bringing uh, emotional intelligence into the workplace. This is hard stuff. Yeah. You know, it's, it's hard stuff for any two people in a relationship, <laughs> right. Right. you know, yep. to, to, to figure it out, let alone for groups of people. And, you know, it's taken a lot of, of training. We've had to bring in outside trainers to help us. But I think it's holding this value that we value the actual moment-to-moment process of our work. And we're going to keep working on it. And it's going to require us to grow as individuals because we're going to be caught where we're defensive or we're going to be caught accusing somebody of something. And we're going to have to develop that skill of apologizing and listening to feedback and learning to say things different ways. And so it's an ongoing commitment. Mm, mm. Um, but this is more whimsical, but I, I think it also is, it's certainly also part of this philosophy. You have a bring your dog to work policy, right? People can. No, bring no, no, it. you don't have to bring your, you don't have <laughs> you don't to, have but you to. can, what is it? You, you, can. you can come, you can be a dogless person and come to work. It sounds true. <laughs> You can be a cat lover. You can, you can, it's probably, you probably wouldn't want to work at the company if you didn't like animals because there's quite a lot of free floating dog hair. But yeah, uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's just a sort of simple welcome invitation. And, you know, I often say that the dogs humanize the workplace. Mm. And that is what it feels like because people stop. And say, oh, my God, da, da. you know, they, they they immediately move into this place of uh, petting mm-hmm. an animal and connecting and not being in such a rush. Once again, it's a way to create that pause that we spoke about, that yeah. punctuation in our day. And suddenly an adorable animal is the one that's interrupting this sense of I have all these really important things to do and I don't have time <laughs> for that. Well, yeah, you do. You do have time to take your dog out. And in fact, I hope you will take your dog out. And in that process, you'll get some fresh air and take a short walk and have many of the benefits of a cigarette break without a cigarette. (laughs) That's right. You've written 
um, about three things you found useful in, and you put it this way, creating a spaciousness at work and in life. And I want to ask you about these because they're, they're, they're unusual. The way you phrased it is unusual and it's intriguing. So it was attending to physical sensations, bringing attention to the back of the body, and beginning meetings with silence. So let, I mean, I'd like to talk about each of those. Attending to physical sensations. What do you mean by that? Yeah, well, you know, I spend a lot of my uh, workday in meetings, uh, which is probably what a lot of people do who have office jobs. And so meeting after meeting after meeting. And, of course, uh, I can get agitated depending on the topic at hand and who in the meeting is talking and how they're addressing the topic. And so how can I uh, open up a bit and relax, not cut the person off. I used to be a terrible interrupter. And now I'd say I'm just a, an averagely terrible <laughs> interrupter, but not the, you know. And so how can I, this, this thing, create more space so that in the meeting, everybody gets a chance to express themselves and people don't feel rushed because actually we'll have better results if there isn't a sense of people feeling uh, pressured. and I mean, the actual conversation can come to a more intelligent point. And so paying attention to physical sensations, often what I do is I'll pay attention to uh, my hands, uh, the way my fingers are clasped together, or the bottom Mm. of my feet, and the way my feet feel touching the floor. And when I pay attention to the physical sensations, I can notice if I'm clenching. And normally a very tense and interruptive comment comes from a tense and clenching body. And so if I can just breathe deeply, paying attention to the physical sensations and let them flow in the body and feel the sense of my feet on the ground, quite grounded, calm, my hands aren't clenched into a fist in any way, the physical sensations start to move, and it's actually quite pleasant. And what I notice is that when I do that, it creates a space for other people to come forward instead of me just being in my clench fist driver mm-hmm. mode. Mm-hmm. So, so that's what I mean by paying attention to physical sensations and looking for tension, finding the places of tension in the body, and then relaxing those places, breathing in, to those places and creating actual somatic space within me mm-hmm. to receive other people. Now, and this idea of going into the back of yeah, the body. Yeah, bringing attention to the back yeah, of the body. What's that about? That's something I learned specifically uh, from Reggie Ray in the meditation training. And it was so helpful to me in meditation practice and also in meetings and in every situation, really, a a long business dinner that's going on for four (laughs) hours. And what I've noticed is that I come into the front of the body. So that means when I say come into, it means like my energy, my attention is more forward. And there's even a sense of kind of leaning forward. And it's the sense of like pushing my agenda. And there is a somatic correlate to that energetic of pushing forward and I've got something to say and here's how we should do it and I know the right way. All of that comes from being in the front half, if you will, of the body and pushing forward. It's going to be this way. And I notice when I bring my attention back, so it's just sort of in front of the spine or even 
further back, 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 there's actually this creation of room once again to receive other people. And the idea is that our somatic architecture, meaning how we are in our body, actually creates a state of being that communicates so much to other people. So you might notice that, you know, with certain people, you just feel they can receive you in a certain way. Mm -hmm, oh, my God, I just mm -hmm. I want to tell you my whole life story. There's none of that. And other people, there's like there's no space. There's no room. They don't have any room inside. You don't even want to tell them anything. And this going into the back, back of the body is one of the things that um, I found really uh, has helped me create room for other people. And That's, then, uh, yeah. Just, before we before we go on to the next one, it, yeah. it, it's almost I, I don't know if it's the opposite of leaning in, right? There's suddenly this new catchword in the culture from Sheryl Sandberg, um, yeah. another woman, a, a female business leader, um, and I and I actually wanted to ask you about this, but I mean, I mean, you know, almost just physically, visually. When I think about bringing your attention to the back of the body, it's it's a different posture, <laughs> yeah. or is it? I mean, how are, I'm curious about how you're well, responding to that. Well, and of course, we that. need we need both. Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes you need to lean into a situation mm -hmm. and bring yourself forward and express yourself, and that's really important. I think what I found, and maybe this is just being a kind of driving basically dominating person, if you will, I needed to learn how to lean back. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, here I am in the meeting. I'm uh, the publisher of the company, the founder of the company. Everything I say has more weight than what everybody else is going to say. And if on top of it, I'm uh, leaning forward and doing most of the talking, then there's no room for me to actually learn and hear the intelligence of everybody else in the room. And there's no room, as I was describing, for this quality of fresh emptiness for the pause for the gap to be there right. and i i want to create the space for that gap because i think it's in the gap that the magic happens that these completely unexpected uh unknown uh unthought of, unprecedented things occur. So I am interested in doing everything i can to create gap space. Mm -hmm. All right, and the third thing was beginning meetings with silence. Yeah. That's something that's really caught on at Sounds True, and we call it a good minute. And we start our meetings with a, a minute of silence. And, you know, we present it in such a way that it's not like you have to be doing anything in particular in that minute. So you don't have to be meditating in some formal way or uh, it's a way to introduce a break so that the meeting has a clean start. People aren't bringing with them the five other conversations that they were having on the way from their last meeting and then in the bathroom and then in the kitchen and they're bringing all of that in and there's a lot of kind of uh, chaos and flurry and then what are we really talking about? And it's more like, no, let's all stop for one minute, one good minute, and let us leave everything that is behind that doesn't need to be here. Let us leave that all outside the door, center ourselves, really, take a few beautiful breaths, appreciate this opportunity that we have, which is to be with each other and to work together and uh, listen to each other 
and we'll start the meeting in a, in a minute. And Ooh. then there's just silence. And I notice that it helps me feel quite a bit more grounded when the meeting begins, and it often helps us be quite a bit more efficient as well. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, Tammy Simon. She founded and runs Sounds True, a multimedia company with the mission to disseminate spiritual wisdom. spoke at the Wisdom 2.0 conference, or, or I may have spoken there a couple of times. I was reading some blogs that people wrote about hearing you, and one of the, something that really struck a few people was this statement you made that the most important connection with technology that we have is the one we have with ourselves, or the most important connection you have with technology is the one with yourself. And I want to know what you meant by that. Hmm. I, what what I remember when I um, spoke at the Wisdom 2.0 conference for the very first time is that I was really trying, and I'm still trying, to uh, work with my mobile device as a spiritual practice tool mm. because I'm uh, quite an addict, meaning I'm constantly on it. I'm on it at inappropriate times. And it's one of the clearest mirrors to me of the way that I have uh, uh, overly invested myself in accomplishing things and being connected with other people and making stuff happen. It's this huge mirror. It's like a billboard. It's so obvious to me. (laughs) And so I thought, okay, so now the universe has given me a new spiritual practice tool, which is to ask myself when I'm uh, engaged in, uh, uh, you know, overly checking voicemails and emails when there's really something else at hand, like a person who uh, I would like to be relating with, who needs my attention. What am I doing and why am I doing this? Mm -hmm. What is actually going on inside me right now? And what I've seen is that I'm often feeling uh, slightly agitated inside, meaning just slightly concerned about something or slightly paranoid about something or slightly worried about something or just slightly something that's not peaceful. Yeah. And that it, by getting involved in, you know, okay, I'm going to, you know, text this, do this, whatever, that it, oh, okay, now I don't feel quite so tense. And so instead... Until you push send and then you have to get tense again. (laughs) Yeah, and then wait for the next thing, whatever. So instead it's like, just don't do that. Put it down and work with what's happening in your body in that moment and actually use this as a self-investigation opportunity. Hmm. Is, and is that working? Is that a good discipline? It, it, it's great. No, you're kidding me. I'm huh. practicing all day long. <laughs> right. Um, I met you for for the first time in person uh, at a at a conference, and you were telling me about this new project, the Wake Up Festival. And I think it is a new thing you're doing, right? That it's a new yeah. new venture. And I was very uh, struck by. The energy, and you know, I, I mean, I, I, I remember this so vividly. I didn't know you. We had a very short conversation, but you talked about this discovery 
that had come through that festival or had been deepened through that festival of that joy and a kind of full-bodied pleasure are part of the spiritual life. So tell me about that. Yeah. Well, I think in a lot of the meditation training I've done, there's been an emphasis uh, more on a type of um, boot camp approach. And, you know, that's been uh, tremendously useful in learning to sit in meditation for long periods of time. And it's been so useful in terms of this tolerating of difficult physical experiences and being able to sit with it and eventually see that it will pass. I had this question inside, how much real transformation can happen in an environment where people aren't pushed up against an edge like that, where you're, you know, sitting from 6.30 in the morning till 9 p.m. at night. But what I discovered in myself, and I received uh, letters and emails from people as well, is that for some of us, actually one of the thresholds we have and one of the ways that we hold ourselves back from the fullness of life is that we keep ourselves bound up and unavailable for unbridled pleasure. And that really celebration is one of the ways that we can break out of often our standard way of being, which can often be quite tight and quite kind of held in and repressed, if you will. And that having this opportunity to let that go and actually say, you know, it's safe for me to be with other people and declare my love of life and my uh, love of the open and expressed human heart, that that can actually push us into new places beyond our regular boundaries. <laughs> um, but I have to ask you, and I think you might be, like me, an introvert and uh, an introvert who loves people. And uh, I wonder if even a few years ago you would have imagined that you could get excited about an experience like that. Well, you're right. I am, <laughs> I am an introvert. Uh, and, you know, some of what I've seen is that Even as I say that to you, quote unquote, I'm an introvert, you know, I I think that I put myself in that box. And at this point, I don't even know anymore. Mm -hmm. And I want to open it up a bit because uh, I think sometimes we can label ourselves a this or that, you know, whether it's something about our Enneagram type or this kind of woman or this kind of man. And uh, I'm interested in actually opening that and just exploring. And what I notice is that I actually really enjoy uh, being with other people in deep spaces. Yeah, you know, when we first started speaking, you and I asked you about your, the spiritual background of your childhood, you, you talked about a feeling yeah. of loneliness. And, and one thing with this content that I create, and I, I know it's true of your content as well, one thing people say to me that is so so gratifying and humbling is I, I listen to this and I feel less alone. Yeah. And it touches on that. But, and it, it's about living in this world with all its complexity and its beauty and its terror and its excitement. And, and then so many of us are 
are looking for deep places, right? We are asking these big questions and we are reflecting, but it's sometimes hard. It's not always evident. It's not always on the surface of our, of our cultural life that, that there are so many of us, right? Yeah. Well, I think what you're pointing to is this longing and I would even say need to connect. And uh, that's what I think spiritual friendship can be about. I think that's what deep listening to the lives of great teachers and mystics, there's this quality where we, even across the centuries, we connect, our hearts connect. And it's like they're still available. Their teachings and ideas are still available. And I know for me, that's what makes my heart feel connected in the world. Tammy Simon is publisher, CEO, and founder of Sounds True. Listen again, download, and share this program at onbeing.org. We've also posted my entire unedited conversation with Tammy Simon, featuring her thoughts on the difficulties that arise when spiritual awakening meets modern marketing. And I warmly invite you to subscribe to our email newsletter. Each week, you'll get priority access to our latest podcasts, invitations to live events, behind-the-scenes insights, and a list of our most popular blog posts. We only ask for your email address, nothing more. Click on the newsletter link at the top of any page on our website. Again, that's onbeing.org. On Being On Air and Online is produced by Chris Hegel. Stephanie Bell is our coordinating producer. Our senior producer is Dave McGuire. Trent Gillis is senior editor. And I'm Krista Tippett. On Being is supported by the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org. On Being is extending its reach throughout America with support from Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private foundation. Next time, a physicist, the string theorist S. James Gates. He's working to evolve the cosmic language of mathematics to tell the whole story of what we're made of and where we came from. Please join us. This is APM American Public Media.